Um, Our scripture reading today is from Acts 4, verses 1 through 24. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread it no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we but cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hearing this story read, I can't help but think about what my prayer would be at this moment. Don't you wonder that too? Given all that had happened, all that had taken place in this story, what would have been my request to God. Upon being released, I think I would have done exactly what Peter and John did, immediately find their friends and tell them what happened. You'll never believe it. They released us. They, they couldn't do anything against us because the whole city is praising God because of the man that we healed. That's Acts 3, if you missed last week. We're still in the beginning part of a series in the book of Acts called The Beauty of Weakness. And these two chapters, Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, they come together as one united story. Beginning of Acts 3, Peter and John are on their way into the temple when a man born without the ability to walk asks them for money. 
But instead of silver and gold, Peter offers the man who had been lame for over 40 years the ability to walk in Jesus' name, healing in Jesus' name. And then, improbably, impossibly even, the man, he gets up, and, and it's not as though he's stumbling or his legs are weak as you might expect, but he's leaping. There is pep in his step, so to speak. And then Peter grabs the moment, he seizes the mic, and he preaches to the astonished crowd. That's Acts 3. And then Acts 4, our passage for this morning, which Amanda read for us a moment ago. But I had her stop short. And I had her stop short because I'm fascinated by this question of the apostles' prayer. Because again, I think, what would I have prayed for? What would my prayer have been? Maybe for safety? For deliverance? For protection? Those seem like appropriate prayers, don't they? Well, how about the apostles? What did they pray for? Look back at our passage with me, picking up where Amanda left off, verse 24. And when the other disciples heard all that had happened, they lifted their voices together to God and prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they pray Psalm 2 here, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against you, the Lord, and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Did you catch it? It's remarkable. In the face of incredible opposition, in the face of arrest, torture, and even death, the disciples don't pray for safety. They don't pray for deliverance or for protection. No, they pray for continued boldness. And they pray for specific boldness too. Specific boldness to continue to speak God's word, to continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. They pray for boldness to continue doing the exact thing that got them arrested in the first place. I'll be honest, I don't think that would have been my prayer. I mean, you have to think about the context that these men were in. The last time that Peter and John saw the council of religious leaders do their work was when they were instrumental in the murder of Jesus. Perhaps more than anyone, Peter and John knew what these men were capable of. Can you even imagine standing in that room being forced to testify with Annas and Caiaphas, the same men who helped rile up the crowd to chant for Jesus' crucifixion? Can you imagine all that you would have felt, the emotions that would be running through you? And then, after your miraculous release, you get together with your friends and you pray for continued boldness? Listen, I want to be bold. I want to be courageous. I want to stand tall, and then when that gets hard, I want to pray for the ability to stand taller. 
But so often, I don't. So often, instead of courage, I exhibit fear. So often, instead of boldness, I bail. I run in the opposite direction. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe you're a little bit more like me rather than Peter and John. But I'm not content with that. And maybe you're not either. So it's worth us asking the question, how can we become bold? How can we become bold? And I think it's worth asking then, how did they do it? What can we learn from Peter, from John, from the first Christians? I think in Acts 4, our passage this morning, we discover three components of boldness. So we're going to walk back through this story and discover three components of boldness. And as we enter in, what we see predictably is that the religious leaders are fuming about what has happened. The incredible miracle plus Peter's preaching plus the Holy Spirit has caused the number of Christians to grow. The passage says that it's 5,000 men. It's probably 10 or 15,000 total people that the amount of Christians has swelled to. And the religious leaders, they think, didn't we solve this Jesus problem when we killed him? Because that's what's supposed to happen. You kill the leader and the movement dies, but not with the Jesus movement. Jesus died and then his body went missing. You know, where do we put that thing? And the movement only grows. So the religious leaders throw Peter and John in jail overnight. They think to themselves, perhaps we can still contain this thing. Perhaps we can still get it under control. And the next day, the council drags them into the middle of the room, demanding to know how they performed the miracle. And Peter, he responds to their threats, to their accusations, to their questions. He responds in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. It's bold, right? Peter had clearly never heard of a constructive criticism sandwich. You know about those, don't you? His response would have looked way different. You guys, you're doing a great job leading the people. Just one note, Jesus is God and you killed him, but hey, awesome sermon last week at Temple. Right? I do that. It's the, you say the nice thing and then the thing that you're not in love with and then the nice thing. It's the constructive criticism sandwich, but Peter's never heard of this. All he does is give the bald truth. He speaks with boldness. And this is remarkable because three months earlier in the exact same spot, Peter denied Jesus three times. I swear I don't know the man. I wasn't with him. I don't know what you're talking about. All the way to this. This man has been healed by Jesus, whom God anointed, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. He continues on in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And this may sound odd to us comparing Jesus to a rock, but this is a reference to Psalm 118, which when you read the whole New Testament ends up being one of the most quoted psalms in the whole New Testament. And it's this brilliant metaphor. In ancient Near East culture, the cornerstone was by far the most important part of any building because literally the rest of the building was constructed on top of it. So Peter weaves in this metaphor. God is building 
a new building, and Jesus is the most important part. It's rhetorically very powerful. But he carries it out one step further, and how he carries it out is really bold. And you, the religious leaders, Peter says, you should have been the expert architects. You're supposed to know our scriptures the best. You should have seen that Jesus is at the center of God's plan, but you didn't. You missed it. Well, how do the religious leaders react to this display of boldness? Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that these men, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. And that, the very last part of verse 13, leads us to our first component for boldness. If you want to be bold, you have to see the world with new eyes. If you want to be bold, you have to see the world with new eyes. Why were Peter and John so bold? Why had everything changed for them? Why was it different? Why were they seeing the world with new eyes? Well, again, the clue for us is that the end of verse 13, the religious leaders, they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. They were with Jesus. Three months earlier, a man who they had watched die on a cross, a man that they had dedicated their entire, they dropped their jobs, their work to follow after Jesus, and then it looked like it all came to an end when that man hung on a cross. But then three days later, he rose back to life. They watched the stone be rolled in front of his grave, and then three days later, they ate breakfast with him on the beach. Nothing could ever be the same again. Peter and John had realized in the most incredible and powerful way that death did not have the final word, that resurrection and new life were actually possible, that God was constructing a new building and Jesus was the most important central part of it. After the empty grave, Jesus is at the center. He's everything. The Messiah, the creator, the cornerstone, the resurrection and the life. Which, let's, let's talk about that last one for a moment, the resurrection and the life, because I think in this we begin to see some of Peter and John's boldness. Jesus claims this of himself in John chapter 11, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And when you know, like when you really, really know that death is not the end, what place does fear have? What room is there to be cowardice or to not exhibit boldness? Death is the final and great enemy. But if death can be defeated, how can we be afraid anymore? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the conqueror over death, and he offers that to any and all who trust in him. And Peter and John, they trust in him. They have given up everything to follow him, and it's completely changed the way they see the world, which leads to their boldness, because nothing is at the same. Jesus is at the center. If you want to be bold, you have to see the world with new eyes. And here's the other part of this, too. Seeing the world through a Jesus lens defines what boldness is, doesn't it? We can't miss that, because if we decide that we're going to be bold, but then we have the wrong idea about what boldness is, we can still do a ton of damage. Boldness does not mean arrogance, judgmentalism, or arguing. Boldness is not brashness. 
Too many Christians think being a jerk in the name of Jesus is the same as being bold, but it's not. One of the central tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus had to die for us, had to die for me and had to die for you. What that immediately means is that there is absolutely no room for pride in the Christian faith. There is no room for a holier-than-thou attitude because we don't have this figured out, and my sins put Jesus on the cross. And so we have to exhibit boldness with humility, with grace, with good works. Yes, we share what we believe, and that will astonish people, and it might make them uncomfortable, but will they conclude about us what they concluded about Peter and about John? Peter spoke with great boldness. He answered the questions that were asked of him. He challenged the authorities. He spoke truth about Jesus. And what, what did the religious leaders say? They recognized that these men had been with Jesus. If someone were to put your life on trial, could they come to the same conclusion? Could they say the same thing? I, I look at Paul and I see that he's been with Jesus. I don't know that that's always true. To be bold in the way that Jesus wants us to be bold, we have to see the world differently. We have to be fearless because death has been conquered and that's available to us, yet we have to be radically humble and hold those two things in tension. Back to the story, because there's something else that Peter says, and it's one of the most offensive statements that anyone can make, both today in our time and in theirs. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation, forgiveness, resurrection, new life, everything we need, everything the world needs, and it only comes through one man, Peter says, Jesus, just him and him alone. And the question in our minds is the same one that was in theirs. What do you mean only Jesus? Sh surely not. What about my friends and family who don't believe? What about good people who believe other things? What about those who have never heard about Jesus? I mean, these are real questions and they're good ones. I'll say just two things briefly. First, the answers to those questions are ultimately up to God and not us. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask those questions, we shouldn't wrestle with those questions or discuss those questions. We should do that. We just won't be able to give definitive answers. But what we do know definitively is that God is both infinitely just and infinitely merciful. He holds both of those infinite things in tension with one another, while at the same time being infinitely wise. And so even though it's not easy, our work is to trust him to answer those questions as he sees fit. The second thing is that Peter knew, and hopefully we know too, that there is no one even remotely like Jesus. So while this claim seems outstanding, how can, how can it really be no one else? And when we fixate on that, and I have fixated on that, it starts to kind of blow our minds a bit, but let's take the focus back to Jesus because there is no one like him remotely. 
in the history of time, never has anyone done what Jesus did or claimed what Jesus claimed. I mean, don't forget the man that Peter and John healed. The passage tells us that he's standing right there with them in the room. And you can almost see Peter as he's giving this testimony, as he's speaking boldly. You can almost hear Peter or see Peter point at this man and say, do you see this man healed, given the ability to walk after more than 40 years? Jesus did that, not me. There's no one like Jesus, which is why this truth claim, this exclusive truth claim, is possible because Jesus is unlike anybody ever before. And more than just miracles, Jesus claimed to be God over and over and over again when he forgave sins, when he reframed the scriptures to put himself at the center. That's the original Tidad, right? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's rereading the scriptures and putting himself at the center in the I am statements in John. Who else says I am the resurrection and the life? If I ever did that, if Bill ever did that, please run away from this place as fast as you can. But that's what Jesus did and claimed. You see, with his life, Jesus wrote this enormous check. He lived for 33 years. He wrote a check. He signed on the bottom right. And when he was dying on the cross, it really seemed as though that check was going to bounce. That he wasn't who he claimed to be, that he was more of a flash in the pan, who knew how he did all those miracles, but there he is, dying. But you see, in the resurrection, the check cleared. No questions whatsoever. Jesus cashed that check with his resurrection. It proved his claim that he wasn't just a teacher, a miracle worker, or a prophet. No, he was God himself in the flesh. And this leads us to our second component of boldness that we see in this story. If you want to be bold, you have to believe that it might actually be worth it. If you want to be bold, you have to believe that it might actually be worth it. If we're going to live a bold life, then we have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he can and will keep his promises. We have to believe that he is making the world new again, even now. We need to believe that others need to hear about Jesus and that when they do hear, they might actually respond and surrender their lives to him. Peter and John, they believed that it was worth it. They believed that Jesus was who he said he was and they believed it was worth it to be bold. You can be saved, Peter says to the men who murdered Jesus. I mean, isn't that incredible? The claims of Jesus are both at the same time exclusive. Salvation only comes through his name, but then radically inclusive because Peter says to the men that killed Jesus, you can be saved. There is no, under no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. He folds in the murderers of Jesus into his plea to surrender their lives. I mean, this is hard for us, but not every religion is the same. Every other religion puts us at the center. Can we be good enough? Will we measure up? If so, maybe God will accept us. But not Christianity. Again, Christianity, Jesus is at the center. The message of the Christian faith is that Jesus was good enough, and then he died for you. Now will you trust him? Peter and John were so confident 
that it was worth it, that there was no way they were going to stop. This is one of my favorite parts of this story. Their lives had been changed, and they couldn't stay silent. The religious leaders called them back in and threatened them. Stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. And then there comes their reply in verse 20. It's magnificently bold. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In the margins of my Bible some time ago, long before preparing for this sermon, I wrote just a simple question next to that verse. Is this me? Is this me? I wasn't sure then and I'm not sure now, but I want it to be. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Over the weekend, I picked up a copy of Billy Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am, at a used book sale for a dollar. One of the best dollars I've ever spent. I can't put this book down. I've long admired Graham, both how he finished well, many of you probably know, passed away just 10 days ago at the age of, 19, at the age of 99. He was born on November 7th, 1918. Almost made it to 100. Graham finished well, and I've always admired that. And I've also always admired the incredible boldness with which he lived his life. But as I've been reading this biography, actually what has stood out to me the most about Billy Graham's boldness is not the stadiums that he was able to preach in. I mean, those are incredible and this unbelievable uh, happening. But what has stood out to me the most is these stories of these one-on-one gatherings that he has, these meetings that he gets invited to with incredible people all over the world. He gets invited into these rooms, into these spaces with these world leaders, and they ask him questions. They, ha- they have wonderings about the Bible and about faith and about their own salvation. And in those moments, over and over and over again, I was struck and I was touched by how Billy Graham would pray a simple prayer for boldness, to speak truth in those settings. And that's what's touched me most deeply as reading this autobiography about Graham's boldness. There's no question, I think, and reading his autobiography has only confirmed it for me, that Graham saw the world with new eyes and he believed that Jesus was worth it. The two things that we've talked about this morning. But that's not all. In fact, Graham would be the first to say that these two components that we've discovered weren't enough to explain what happened in the incredible campaigns he led in the 1950s. And one quote from the book illustrates what I mean. Reflecting on the Watershed Los Angeles campaign of 1949, this was really the campaign that put them on the map. Uh, And over the course of two months, eight weeks, Hundreds of thousands came to hear Graham preach, and thousands surrendered their lives to Jesus. Reflecting on that campaign, Graham wrote this. He said, everywhere we turned, someone wanted us to come and do for them what had been done in Los Angeles. What they didn't know, however, was that we had not done it. I was still a country preacher with too much on my plate. Whatever this could be called and whatever it would become, and it really did become something, It was God's doing. And that's just it, isn't it? God's doing, not ours. Which leads right to the third component for boldness. If you want to be bold, you have to depend on a strength that's not your own. If you want to be bold, you have to depend on a strength that's not your own. And we don't just see this truth in the life of Billy Graham either. 
This is all over Acts 4. Remember, when pressed for how they performed the miracle, Peter is filled with the Spirit before he responds. It's not him speaking, it's God speaking through them, through him. And take a look at the end of the story, too. Remember, the apostles pray for more boldness. How is that prayer answered? Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we aren't bold by our own strength. None of us can do this on our own. Friends, if you are a Christian, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And no one, no one wants the people in your life to meet Jesus more than he does. So ask him to make you bold, just like Billy Graham did, just like Peter and John and the first apostles did. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Is that our prayer? And I get it, I do. In some ways, Billy Graham is not the best example because we look at his life and we think, well, that's not me. I'm never going to preach to thousands. And you're right, I'm not going to either. But that doesn't mean that we can't contextualize these components for our tomorrow. Because sure, you won't be in front of thousands this time tomorrow in Wembley Stadium preaching to 100,000 people. And you won't be in the middle of a council of religious leaders who are threatening you to stop speaking and preaching in Jesus' name. But you will be somewhere tomorrow. So here's the question. What does this mean for our tomorrow? What does this mean for our tomorrow? How can we be bold this time tomorrow in the midst of our everyday lives? And I don't pretend either to know the complexities of your world. Not at all. But I do know what the first step is, and it's a simple prayer. God, make me bold. God, make me bold. Again, boldness is not brashness. It's not arrogance or being weird for the sake of being weird. Boldness is not pointing a finger at sin in the lives of others. And it's not condemning people to hell if they don't accept Jesus. No, boldness invites people to more. Boldness invites people to a life of wholeness and completeness. And it does so out of a great place, out of a place of great humility. So if you pray that prayer, God, make me bold, I really believe that he's going to, he's going to answer it. God will make you bold, which is when things get scary. But remember, you're not doing this on your own. It is only by the strength of the Holy Spirit that we can be bold. And we can grow in our ability to be bold, too. Over time, we can get better at this. So let me give you just a few simple ideas. None of these are original with me, but hopefully they'll spark some imagination for your tomorrow. First, let people know that you are a Christian in a natural, unforced way. If Jesus is important to you, if you would count yourself as a follower of Jesus, then it would actually be inauthentic of you to not be public with that in natural, unforced ways. And our culture values authenticity maybe more than anything. So let this happen in your life. Let people know that you're a Christian. Number two, ask friends or family about their faith and then just listen. Christians should be the best listeners. But oftentimes we're just really good at waiting for our chance to speak so that we can get our point in. 
I really think the way of boldness in our culture today is going to begin with good listening. Again, not just waiting for our chance to get a word in, but actually listening to questions, objections, frustrations. Just listen. Number three, listen to problems and struggles and then maybe offer to pray. You'd be surprised at how open people are to this. Thoughts and prayers are still a thing today. Even in 21st century America, let's leverage that. I'm so sorry to hear about that. That's incredibly difficult. Would you mind if I prayed for you right now? Number four, share your story. Why and how did you become a Christian? Our culture values authenticity, and our culture values personal stories. One of the greatest affronts that we can commit today in our culture is to tell somebody else that their story is not true or it doesn't belong to them. So let's leverage that. What's your story? Now, to be able to do this winsomely, you actually have to know your story. You have to really be able to answer this question. Why and how did I become a Christian? Why is this important to me? What does it change about my work, about my family, about my life? Why have I put Jesus at the center of my life? And the other great part about sharing your story is it means that you don't have to have all the answers. Because I'm guessing that's part of all of our stories, We tried to go it on our own, and we realized at some point that we couldn't do that because we didn't have the answers. I know that's part of my story. So you don't have to have all the answers in these moments to be bold. In fact, that's part of the Christian story saying, I don't have all the answers, but I found a man who did, Jesus. And finally, invite friends and family to church. And this one can feel hard to do naturally. But don't force it. Look for more natural openings to do this. We've shared these before, but they're too good not to share again. The three knots. Times when it might be a tad easier to invite someone with you to church. The three knots. The first one, I'm not from around here. I'm not from around here. Welcome to Kansas City. Hope you've enjoyed the barbecue so far. I don't know if you're a church person, but I love my church, and it has been such a place of community for me. Second, Things are not going well, or we were not prepared for this, two and three. Things are not going well, or we were not prepared for this. New marriage, new kid, new job. Wow, that sounds hard. That sounds overwhelming. I don't know if you're a church person, but I love my church, and I have found such encouragement in the midst of life's struggles. No pressure, but would you ever want to come with me? And when we step out in boldness and do these things, when we rely on the Spirit, when we grow in our ability to be bold, when we pray for boldness just like the first disciples did, who knows what might happen? The message of Jesus, that light and life are possible, that darkness and death don't get the final word, that message has changed the world a thousand times over. And we believe that God is just warming up don't we? Friends, Peter was bold because three months earlier, he stepped through into an entirely different world, a world where resurrection happens, where shame is defeated, with depression, loneliness, and disease too. Peter stepped into a world where death finally met its match, where anyone can be saved. And Peter was bold because he realized he knew how to invite others into this world, It's Jesus, he exclaimed. He's the only one by which everything sad will come untrue. 
And church, don't miss it this morning. We believe that we've discovered this world too, that we live here just like Peter did. We've discovered the entrance through Jesus, and we believe that others need it just as badly as we did. So let's pray for boldness, where we invite people to more, to an abundant life with Jesus, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. Let's pray. Father, we do pray the same prayer as the early church, as those first Christians, Father. We pray with them. Grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Father, help us to be bold, not for our own name, but for yours, because we truly do believe that it is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. And it is in that name, in the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.